You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. We begin our time together this morning suffering under two liabilities. The first is audience resistance. Now, I don't believe, in all deference to myself, that it's necessarily resistance to me in particular. What we're dealing with here this morning, if I'm any judge of situations, is resistance to being chaplain at all. (laughs) What a disappointment for you. They canceled seminary switch day, which we all know in our hearts is our fourth cut. So I begin by apologizing to you, dragging you out here like this. The second liability that we begin under, I begin under, is that for several weeks I have been preparing, guided by the instructions and ministry of my dear friend and pastor, pastor to us all, Dr. Moore, I've been preparing with a mind to be speaking to an audience that would contain seminary professors, even more formidable seminary students. And with that in mind, I prepared a heavily theological message. It even contained, in deference to my friend, Dr. Hamilton, it even contained three Hebrew words. (laughs) And I worked so hard on this that I feel obliged to give you the three words anyway. As I got out my lexicon, here are my three words. The first one is Abba. Which is Hebrew for hi there. The second word is Saul, which is Hebrew for Saul. And the third Hebrew word, which I, with which I acquainted myself, is Selah, which I take to be from the book of Psalms as a kind of musical notation, a note. And I like to think in my heart of hearts that it's my own personal favorite note, D natural. It's really a good sermon I had prepared on those three words, but now, alas, you'll never hear them. At least you won't hear them this morning. So we turn from this twin disappointment to uh, the 30 minutes, which you are prepared with more or less degree of willingness and enthusiasm to invest in an encounter with the Word of God. And who can say in advance, without presuming on God the Holy Spirit, who can say in advance which encounter with God's Word will be important and which will not? We're going to turn from Hebrew words to English words and plain words at that. Again, we're going to have a little word association game, kind of a, by way of preliminary. Now, class, uh, I want to just, oh, class. <laughs> Dr. Donaldson, is there, perhaps you can gather your little choir and come back up here and sing for the rest of the hour. (laughs) Completely falling apart, as you anticipated. (laughs) Dr. Donaldson and I were talking before chapel, and he suggested, I thought as a joke, but now I see quite seriously, that we have 25 hymns. Would have been better. (laughs) What I was going to say is, my friends and comrades, some of you who are in my classes, These questions are entirely rhetorical. 
Uh, they're going to have little word association, but it's rhetorical in nature. No response is required, if you get my meaning. <laughs> I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of the image that that word conjures up. Now, this is serious. I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to think of the word that that, uh, think of the image that that word conjures up. Clam. Clam. That's fairly simple. When I say the word clam, you envision the cheerful little bivalve of fry steamer and chowder fame, right? General agreement on clam. We move up one stage in complexity. I say horse. This is a little bit more difficult. Depending on the range of your experience and your knowledge of horses, you'd have a, there'll be a little um, fuzziness. There'll be a little bit of lack of focus, but quickly you focus in on a horse. And I would just venture to guess that 80% of you will think of a mature animal. You won't think of an old horse with you know, gray around the muzzle, and you won't think of a foal. You'll think of a mature horse, you won't distinguish especially the gender, but the horse will probably be brown, maybe with a black tail, black mane. Horse. A little less agreement, but generally you've got a picture of a horse. And I don't know if we have any philosophers here or not, but if we do, you'll notice that I steer clear to avoid contention and controversy, which rages in any case in this community, to avoid the controversy that uh, would rage if I were to suggest which came first, the horse or your image of the horse. Some of my <laughs> philosophical colleagues, none of whom are here, but if we had any philosophical co colleagues here, they would immediately recognize my reference, how erudite, to Plato. How about if I say Christian? Now that is unfair, because when I say the word Christian, so many images flow into your mind that you can't focus, I wouldn't think, that you'd be able to focus easily on one. For the majority of you, I would say, certainly for some of you I know, the majority of people that you know, and perhaps all the people that you know really well, are Christian, or they claim to be Christian, they're associated with Christianity. The word Christian can be attached to them in some sense or another, and you wouldn't want to venture a judgment, probably you wouldn't want to venture a judgment, I hope you wouldn't, on to what extent it's a valid association. When I say the word Christian, you do not have a clear image. I wouldn't think you'd have a clear image. It would take you a long time and it would be a, a, an artificial process, probably, of, of logical progress before you'd come to an image. Oh, I'll make it so that's unfair. Let me, let me qualify the word Christian. Let me make it easier. Ha ha. For you to think of an image, I will say ideal Christian. When I say those two words, ideal Christian, what image forms in your mind? Of whom do you think? What qualities does this person, he or she, possess, more importantly, what qualities does this person display? Much more important that they should show the qualities than that they should possess them. But what qualities, who do you think of? Of whom do you think, excuse me, Dr. Zimmer, of whom do you think when I say ideal Christian? Who flows into your mind? What if I say Christ? What image flows into your mind when I say Christ? Do you think of he who partakes of the nature of the triune God. Do you think of the creator, the governor, the preserver of all existence? Do you think of the king of the universe, the king of heaven? A week ago last Friday, several friends and I went out early in the morning to, equipped with binoculars and tripods and uh, ultraviolet flashlights, to see Halley's Comet which I am delighted to report we did see exactly where the newspaper said it would be. But it was a beautiful night, one of the, pretty, the prettiest night I think I've ever seen. 
just by chance. It was the, the most beautiful night I have ever seen in my life. The sky, the sky, the sky was just alive with stars. It was breathtaking. It was just awe-inspiring. Do you think, when I say Jesus, do you think of the king of creation? Do you think of the incarnate one? Do you think of rabbi? Do you think of messiah? Do you think of model? Do you think of the savior of the world? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you think of him? Do you think of the comforting one? Do you think of your brother Jesus? Do you think of your friend, your friend Jesus, who always loved you and who loves you now and who always will forever and ever love you? Amen. When I say Jesus, what image comes into your mind? Now you see, this is no longer a game. This is no longer idle word association. This is now a serious business. Because the question I'm asking is really one. It sounds like two, but it's really one. Because these two questions, what's your image of the ideal Christian? And what is your image of Christ? What is your image of the pattern? What is your image of the model? What is your image of the copy? What is your image of the original? Is actually one question. They flow inseparably. They flow unavoidably into one question. And that question is, what is Christ to you? What is Christ to you? The two questions, what to you is an ideal Christian, and what to you is your image of Jesus, those flow together. What is Christ to you? And may I just make a little parenthetical remark? I'm not speaking exclusively to the seniors, or even primarily to the seniors, or more to the seniors to anyone else, more to the seniors than to myself. I could never understand, and in fact I reject the idea, common idea, that the senior class is a legitimate or even a logical object of special spiritual concern. With the exception that I have some serious friends in the senior class, and I will be sorry to see them leave our alma mater. But that aside, the element of friendship aside, I've never been able to see our senior class as in eminent spiritual danger. I think the idea that the seniors in their eminent spiritual danger is based on two fallacious notions. The first of these fallacious notions is that a certain unorthodox, a certain high-spirited behavior pattern of which certain recent senior classes have been more noted than others is going to cause them to fall forever out of favor with the sovereign of the universe. And the second fallacious notion is that these chapels will be their last exposure to the plain teachings of the Christian religion. <laughs> I reject both those fallacies. Let me turn to the Holy Scriptures. 2 Corinthians, the fifth verse, starting at 15. And he that died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but under him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is my personal favorite passage of Scripture, and I was not aware of it. It occurred to me when I started preparing for this morning, but I have preached on this uh, passage several times before and once before in chapel. That did not occur to me when I started, but this is a passage that's very, very dear to me. And let me read you from another translation uh, one, one, of the, uh, one of the verses only from the New English Bible. It's a little bit clearer. His purpose in dying for all was that men while still in life should cease to live for themselves and should live for him who for their sake died and was raised to life. 
Now, let's return to our two questions. What is your image of the ideal Christian? The ideal Christian is one who is holy, who is sanctified. And I embrace these terms, the dearest terms of our tradition, with great love. Now, my love for these terms and my love for the tradition has not been constant. It has been progressive, and it hasn't always been progressive up. It's been variable progressive, whatever that is in mathematics. It's a, a curve with uh, nadirs and apexes. Because the clean ship, schooner, the clean schooner of doctrine sailing through the ocean of history has attracted a good number of barnacles, which impede the poor old boat and sometimes threaten to swamp her altogether. And sometimes we see only the barnacles and we're on the boat and are aware that she is not making any great progress anywhere. And we blame the boat. We blame the boat's designers. We blame the boat's captain. Perhaps unfair. It may simply be a question of trimming her down to her hull. I like maritime analogies. And I like, I love, I embrace the concept, at least the concept, if not the result, communally, at least the concept of holiness and sanctification. The ideal Christian is one who is holy, who is sanctified. Ideal Christian is one to whom Christ is real. What is Christ? Well, let's ask, when we talk about an ideal Christian, what is Christ to the best of us, the ideal Christian? Such a person has that mind which is in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. It is a mind of love. And I think you could say, don't have time this morning, but I think you could make just as good a point, better point maybe, because Mr. Wesley, in his whole approach to sanctification, emphasizes over and over again is the deliberate element, the conscious element, the act of the will, the act of the mind. So I think you could make just as good a sermon, or maybe this isn't a good sermon, you can make a better sermon, if you talked about not a mind of love, but a mind to love. But let's put that aside for later, if there is a later. <laughs> mind of love. And what does love mean? Well, there is the $24 trillion question. What does love mean? Or what doesn't it mean? Why don't I ask you what is truth? What is life? What is the meaning of destiny? What is love? You could profitably talk about what is love for weeks and months. You could have a whole holiness conference simply devoted to, and it would only scratch the surface, simply devoted to the question of what is love. Love is all sorts of things. Love encompasses, incorporates, it infuses, it draws upon, it enlightens, it enlivens the whole range of positive human responses. But minimally, minimally, let's just start with basics. Minimally, love is a conscious disposition not to hurt. Minimally. Minimally, love, very basic, just to squeeze one little teeny-weeny toe into the definition of love, if you want to think of yourself as loving, minimally, the least you can do is be consciously disposed to be at least as Christ-like, to pattern yourself at least as much on the Savior as to consciously avoid hurting other people. Now, love is not primarily negative, I don't, certainly not, at least to that extent, to avoid hurting others. I've said this before in chapel. I mean, let's, as a community, start at least there. Never mind save the world. Never mind save Wilmore. Never mind even save each other. Let's just start minimally with not hurting each other. Number one, the mind of love at least is disposed not to hurt. Is that one of the meanings? Couldn't that be one of the meanings? I've never heard it said. But why couldn't that be one of the meanings of uh, the, the uh, encounter of our Savior with the woman taken in adultery? Before... He did anything else with her. He ensured that she wasn't hurt by the other people around. 
It's a mind of trust. It's a mind to trust. More and more I am aware of how central to the holy experience is trust, by which I do not mean, I categorically do not mean I reject, blind obedience. I'm not talking about blind obedience. I'm talking about committing yourself, embracing with enthusiasm the leading of God on the supposition not that you must do it, that God can command and he is sovereign and you must, you must bow your will to his simply, that it's his will. Not that. That's perhaps the major difference between the Reformed tradition and ours. That's not wrong, but that's not the emphasis I want to make now. I want to make the emphasis that we embrace God's will because we believe absolutely that it is right and it is good. We embrace God's will because it is Christ's will and because we have no other object and no other purpose and no other design and no other end in our earthly existence but then to live as Christ would live us, have us live. And then to submit. It's a mind of love. It's a mind of trust. It's a mind to submit. Now, I, again, I'm not speaking about a, a submissive, meek spirit. I'm talking about submission, deference, patience, tolerance, not to hierarchy, which may or may not be virtuous. It would depend on what the hierarchy was trying to do. I am not talking about submitting, deferring, being patient with nonsense. I'm talking about deferring, submitting, being patient and tolerant with the body of Christ, with each other, with your friends, with your comrades, with your brothers and sisters, with your idle acquaintances, with your teachers, with your ministers, with the people at camp, with the people in the neighborhood, with your family. I'm talking about a submissive spirit to other human beings, waiting patiently, giving them the benefit of the doubt, being tolerant. And how about we add a fourth one, which just occurred to me as I was talking. Why can't we have a fourth one combining the second and third? Why don't we submit to trust? I'll tell you how we could do that. Why don't we submit to trust and consecrate it to love? And this would be the resultant attitude. I had coffee two weeks ago with a man, a seminary student, who we, we were talking about love and, and our response to other people. And he gave me an illustration, which I want to share with you because it was profound. Just a simple thing, but profound. The simplest things are probably the most profound, or the most profound, conversely, are probably the simplest. And this is what he said. Let's think of somebody, X, we'll call this person X, whom you actively dislike. Now, let's not play the innocent. There's nobody I actively dislike. Well, I, I, okay, if there's anybody out there who doesn't actively dislike somebody, I dislike two people, so I'll give you one of mine. <laughs> you can dislike one of my two people. Now, give me one, give you one. Let's think of somebody that we actively dislike, and let's say that person commits the following uh, unsocial, um, unpietistic, uh, even possibly immoral act. Let's say the person is short of temper. Let's say the person misses church. Let's say the person stands you up. Let's say the person is inconsiderate or rude. Let's say the person is apparently self-serving. Let's say the person's outright nasty. Let's go the whole way. <laughs> now, let's say that exactly that behavior pattern was committed under exactly the same circumstances at exactly the same time in your life by your best friend. Someone who you do not, whom you do not actively dislike, but whom you actively love and revere and treasure. You think's the cleverest person ever there was, or the prettiest, or the handsomest, or the most desirable in many important ways to you. And they, this other person, this nice person that you genuinely like, you love, not not like, you love in an earthly sense, a human sense. This person does the same thing. How do you respond to that? You excuse it. You say, he was tired, she's depressed. She's got money worries, her aunt died. 
he has a headache. He's concerned about the basketball game. He's lonesome. He's worried about an examination. He's got indigestion. <laughs> you excuse it. You justify it. You laugh it off. The action is exactly the same. What differs is your reaction. In the case of someone you actively dislike, you decide not to trust, not to be tolerant, not to be patient, not to give the benefit of the doubt. You don't like them. Ergo, what they do is not likable. And what's worse, they might do something nice and you wouldn't like them for it. Their motives are wrong. What's he after, I wonder? I'm not fooled. That goody-goody act. I know what's in his heart or her heart. So let's submit to trust one another and suffuse it all with love. Now, I've given you an image, I think from Scripture. And by the way, time is slipping away, precious time. But let me give you some footnotes, if you're interested, and you all should be if you're not, in a deep study of the doctrine of holiness, not so much the Scriptures, but the doctrine of holiness, which is a good framework to begin studying the whole experience, acquainting yourself with how the experience comes and what it means. Um, but what I'm saying this morning is based on Wesley's plain account of Christian perfection, a book by Asa Mahan on perfection, and, and then on uh, oh, and a book by a man named Lindstrom called Wesleyan Sanctification. I hope it's called Wesleyan Sanctification. Really, uh, uh, those three. And then the Holy Scriptures. So if you're interested, go. So I've given you, from those sources and from my own experience, an image of a holy person, a sanctified person. A mind to love, a mind to trust, a mind to submit. A mind to submit to trust in love. Now, whom do you think of? Think of the person in your mind that you think of. No one, maybe. Not a single soul. You have been here one year, you've been two years, three years, four years, 16 years, 12 years, 15 years, 11 years, 30 years, six months, and not one person comes into your mind when I describe an ideal Christian. Well then, you be an ideal Christian to someone else. You be one to others. Be ones to each other. Be to others what they should be to you. Be to others what you want them to be to you. Be to others what you want to seem. I venture back to Socrates. Socrates said, be what you want to seem. One of the great insights in Western civilization. Be what you want to seem. Because an image of the ideal Christian leads you inexorably, inevitably, to the image of Christ himself, the perfect one. You see Christ only in the images, in the faces, in the actions of his followers. Christ is not only supernatural. And so far as the community is concerned, Christ exists in our lives only in that we are members of his living body. Great strength, the great truth, the great tradition of the Roman Catholic Church is that it emphasizes the body of Christ, the unity, the seamless garment of Christ, the living bride of Christ, we see Christ not in the supernatural. You cannot really conjure up an image of Christ. Victorian sentimental paintings, hymns, statues, if you raised in the Catholic tradition. Image of Christ that must be burned on your minds is the one which the Holy Spirit conveys to you through his holy word and the actions towards you, the images, the faces that are shown to you by other members of the body of Christ. Christ exists for us in his living body. So when you form an image of the ideal Christian, when you resolve to be an ideal Christian, then does Christ come alive to you. And now I come to the very hardest part of my message. Because if it's true that Christ is not an abstraction, and if it's true that his will towards us is not an abstract will, 
but a very real and a very particular and a very concrete one. And we know it is. We know from Thessalonians that this is his will, even your sanctification. We also know that God's dying love embraces all of mankind, that he loves everyone equally, and that no person, the very best among us, the ideal Christian, and not one who claims to be an ideal Christian, or who was taken to be an ideal Christian, but one who is genuinely an ideal Christian, even such a person, has no more claim and no less claim on the life-changing and eternity-conveying love of Christ than the very worst person, because no one has a claim. There's no way to earn it. There's no way that Christ's life-changing, universe-changing grace is related in any way to our merits, which leads me to this. You see the image of Christ in the face of the best Christian. You see the image of Christ in the face of the best person. But equally and also, and much more painful, much harder, but the end, I think, more life-changing still, you also see the image of Christ in the face of Christ in the worst person, the most awful, the most depraved, the most annoying, the most hateful, the most hurtful, and not accidentally, not by chance, not because they're out of sorts, or not because they have indigestion, or not because they're lonely or worried, but because they're vicious, because they're nasty, because they're cruel. You see in such a person's face, as much as you see in the best person's face, you see the image of Christ. What other meaning can Christ's love, what other meaning can unity in Christ and the living body of Christ have for us? I believe in the Holy Apostolic Church, the body of Christ, what other meaning can it have but that Christ died for everyone? And in every face, every soul, you see his image. Our Savior says, Inasmuch as you have done anything for the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Look upon the worst person you know, not merely annoying, but actually bad, actually hurtful. Look, up or, or, look upon such a person as one for whom Christ died as much as he died for you. Look on such a person in terms of an object of Christ's love through you and reflect on how that person will be changed by the slightest kindness. Start with your resolve not to hurt them yourself or to see other people hurt them. Prevent other people from hurting them. Build on that positive overtures of love. Thinking always, inasmuch as you do this, for the least of these, my brethren, says our Savior, you do it unto me. Every action towards the most hateful and annoying person in this community is an action deliberately and consciously towards Christ our Savior. What other meaning can holiness have? What other meaning can, what other, what else can Asbury College stand for? But that we would cherish the best and the worst among us. And the world would look to Asbury College and they would say, see how they love one another. There is truth in Christianity. There is truth even in their particular brand of Christianity. There is something after all in Christian love that changes lives and changes hearts and I will partake of it. That is a feast that I wish to eat from. That is drink which I wish to have. That is air which I wish to breathe. That is music which I wish to hear. His purpose in dying for all was that men while still in life should cease to live for themselves and should live for him who for their sake died and was raised to life. With us therefore worldly standards have ceased to count in our estimate of any man even if once they counted in our understanding of Christ, they do so now no longer. 
When anyone is united to Christ, there is a new world. The old order is gone, and a new order has already begun. Let's pray. Gracious Almighty God, our Father, we rejoice above all things that you've given us to live in a time and place when we can have fellowship with each other in your holy, eternal, life-changing, absolutely true and perfect word. We praise you for your word. We praise you for each other. We praise you for a true community. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us beginning now in new and special ways, life-changing ways, into a sense of what true community, based on love, centering on your word, can be, should be, must be, if we are to fulfill our individual and our collective destiny in you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. We're dismissed.